Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, oh! It's Matt Issa, the guy with the shitty basketball takes, or as my buddy Dill likes to call me, the guy who watched Moneyball once and now wants to be the basketball version of Billy Bean. Back again to bring you the second part of a two part premiere of The Quest for the Best. Please remember that the first episode of the series, where I set the stage for our grand odyssey and reveal who's getting left out of the big dance, is already up on all podcast platforms, and you should definitely check that out before you dive into this piece of work. Anyway, in this chapter, we will be unpacking numbers 10 and 9 on our list of the greatest basketball players in NBA history. Timestamps and the link to the article explaining my AOS stat will be included in the description of the episode. So without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. Whatever happens, I want you to know. Kick his balls in his eyes. Who's the best of the best? They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. All right, no more foreplay. Let's get straight to the point. The 10th greatest player in NBA history is... West will tell you that Oscar was better. West, that doesn't diminish West's own greatness. I mean, West is unbelievable. An unbelievable player. Both of those guys would do well today. Now, Kobe... Kobe's building condos on the moon. He's in his own planet. That's right. Coming in at number 10, the pride of Lower Marion High School. Number 24, Kobe Bryant. If we were comparing all-time greats to Justice League members, Kobe Bryant would most definitely be the Green Arrow. I say this because no player in NBA history carried more different types of quarrels in their proverbial basketball quiver than number 24. Armed with quite possibly the most diverse scoring portfolio in NBA history, Kobe Bryant preferred to launch many of his venomous attacks from the triple threat position. It was from this platform that he could mobilize the wide array of hesitations, jab steps, pump fakes, and of course, his ever so iconic fall away jumper. Bryant may very well have had the deepest bag of scoring tricks in NBA history. And the thing is, he needed each and every one of those parlor tricks. You see, Brian is like Rock Lee in that he wasn't gifted with the gifts that others were blessed with. He lacked brute strength, towering size, or a lightning quick first step. Rather, Kobe turned to a more blue-collared approach to collecting his buckets. Brian did it with precision, dexterity, guile, gamesmanship, and the unrelenting determination to master every single scoring move known to man. All this reaffirms something said to me by my dear friend John Joni a man who has spent his entire life studying the purple and gold icon. Kobe Bryant is the most technically sound basketball player in NBA history. This fact, coupled with the trail of bodies he left during his killing spree from 2007 to 2011, earns him the sobriquet as the greatest tough shot maker the league has ever seen. Now, Bryant's offensive value isn't solely tied to his on-ball scoring prowess. 
In fact, most of his possessions throughout his two-decade-long career began with Bryant working at the elbow, curling off screens or drawing attention away from the live ball action with some of the best guard gravity I've yet witnessed. On one occasion, in a 2006 game against the Phoenix Suns, I recall Rajah Bell being so intent on invading Bryant's airspace, despite him being completely away from the ball, that he missed an opportunity to help Nash when he got beat by a streaking smush Parker. There are multiple instances of this phenomenon occurring. During his Lakers tenure, Bryant possessed a certain on-court gravitas that doesn't immediately jump out on the box score. As writer Harrison Fagan explained to me, you have to understand that Kobe Bryant was oftentimes the scariest guy on the basketball court. His gravity extends out to his playmaking as well, which I have often found to be misunderstood by the casual observer. Kobe was not a chucker, although I will concede I can't recall a heat check opportunity where he at least tried dipping his toe in the water. Regardless of his vices though, Peak Bryant still served as an elite offensive quarterback. He was a good passer, he made good decisions when facing doubles, operated well in the pick and roll, and could even hit the occasional skip pass, although I will say his line of sight was limited by his lack of size, which he tried to accommodate for by using his jump pass, but he was an all-time level creator. At his apex, Bryant created 10 open shots for his teammates per 100 possessions, according to Ben Taylor's box creation stat. That's pretty rarefied air for a player whose career mostly pre-existed the current NBA spacing paradigm. In fact, his creation numbers are on par with or better than Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas, and Michael freaking Jordan. More on him a little later. Kobe's ability to function as an on-ball, off-ball hybrid made it possible for him to be featured in elite offenses, both as the co-star with Shaq early in his career and as Los Angeles' lead guitarist in the late 2000s. Now in examining Brian's defense, one will see there's a lot of ambiguity. The recipient of nine first-team all-defenses, Brian was probably the benefactor of early career notoriety, influencing later ballots and the general public's overall tendency to fetishize over man defense. From studying the film, Bill Simmons' observation appears to be correct. Bryant peaks as a defender in the 1999-2000 season when he spearheaded the point of attack on the Lakers' number one ranked defense. However, as his offensive load began to reach all-time heights, Bryant, by no means a Garnett in the gas tank department, if you know what I'm saying, scaled back his defensive role. Around 2005, he would no longer be tasked with guarding the opposing team's best perimeter player, but rather he'd hang around on the weak side, playing more of a roaming free safety role. Although, I wouldn't chalk this personnel decision up to the Lakers solely wanting to conserve their superstar. To me, Bryant's defensive stance always seemed a little stiff, and he struggled fluidly turning his hips. And this lack of mobility cost him, as he'd have difficulty navigating through screens and would sometimes find himself eating the dust of faster guards. It's also worth mentioning that his slight frame made it difficult for him to match up with forwards and bigger guards in the post. He'd often get bullied down there. But to his credit though, that basketball studiousness I hinted at earlier shows up on this end of the court as well. Brian had great defensive IQ, which, as Coach Dean Oliver pointed out to me, is often the reason for why coaches place their star guards on the least eventful part of the court on defense. It allows them to pull and tug at that five-man string that makes up an NBA defense. And despite rarely getting tested during the back nine of his career, Brian was able to play puppet master on some pretty great Lakers defenses post-Shaq, finishing top six in defensive efficiency every year from 2007 to 2011. 
looking at the analytics, they are a little iffy on Bryant's defense. In his career, he has only one season where his defensive box plus minus is over one and a half. For reference, Michael Jordan owns 10 such seasons and LeBron owns 13. However, he does have good shot blocking numbers for a guard and a really good steal rate, which, as Mavs Moneyball's Joe Halbert points out to me, is a great indicator of a player's defensive IQ. The best summary judgment I can offer on Bryant's defense comes from Mo Dakil, who, during our interview, made the point that when you look at the totality of Bryant's defensive contributions, Kobe still grades out as a net positive on that end of the floor, despite tailing off significantly in his final seasons. This is thanks in part to his contributions as a high-level perimeter defender early in his career. Now turning over to offense, it's pretty easy to see that Kobe's an all-time scoring machine. He owns four seasons better than Wilt's 50-point-per-game season when you adjust for pace. And that shot-making acumen that we discussed earlier proves to be the ultimate playoff trump card. Bryant's efficiency falls off less than most of the all-time greats when they are forced up against the game's most ferocious guardians. And this type of consistency makes him the ideal offensive number one come playoff time. Then there's Bryant's theatrical proficiency. Renowned for that chill-provoking Tiger Woodsian fist pump and that grimacing Nick Cage overbite that helped him to be a free-throw drawing jukebox. Second only to James Harden in the ability at drawing fouls on jump shots, Bryant's 11 free throws per 100 possessions is a better rate than all of the other all-time greats apart from Jordan, LeBron, Robinson, and the Big Diesel. Bryant's discipline also shows up in his historically low turnover rates, posting lower turnover percentages than any all-time creator other than Jordan. So to summarize all of the analytics in film, I'd say I view Bryant as a slight positive on defense, and I'd say his combination of playmaking gravity, resilient scoring, and the ability to generate easy looks by getting to the free throw line makes him one of the six or seven greatest offensive creators in the history of the game. Turning over to his accolades, you'd be hard-pressed to find a resume as voluminous as the one put together by the Lakers icon. He's a five-time NBA champion, two-time finals MVP, one-time regular season MVP, 18-time all-star, two-time scoring champ, two-time made free throws leader, and he's been selected to 15 All-NBA teams and 12 All-Defensive teams. All this gives Bryant a whopping 153 on my adjusted Osaki score, the sixth highest score in NBA history. I told you in my article that this statistic was meant to get a gauge on a player's psychological impact on the basketball community as a whole, so it makes sense that Kobe Bryant the man who won us over with the fearlessness he approached the game of basketball and life as a whole would score so high. Now this takes us to the final, and in my opinion, the most compelling argument for number 24 as the 10th greatest player in NBA history, the anecdotal argument. During our interview, James Edwards III told me that part of a player's greatness comes from their moments. How are you able to forever ingrain yourself in the minds of those that watched you? In the case of Kobe Bryant, he's got that in spades. Whether it be his iconic son's game winner. Bryant with the save. Oh, you got to get a shot here. Final seconds. Bryant for the win. Bang! His career gravity-defying jams. Buckle up for Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant just sucked the gravity out of the 
or his final jumper as a Los Angeles Laker. Bryant for the lead. Yes! Kobe Bryant gives the Lakers the lead. <laughs> oh, I tell you something. This is, you know, he was legendary before this game. This is, this takes it to an absolute another level. An absolute another level. Kobe Bryant, ever the entertainer, owns more great moments than probably anyone in NBA history. It's just such a shame he passed on working with Denzel. Yet attempting to reduce Bryant's basketball footprint to a few flash-in-the-pan moments is disingenuous. The Black Mamba was so much more than an A-list performer during the game's most high-leverage moments. Here's a story for you. When Jordan retired again in 98, it set off a chain reaction that resulted in a worldwide manhunt for his divine Airness's natural successor. Every two-guard on the planet with even an iota of athletic ability was forced to endure the demon trials. And none of them could overcome the icon's towering shadow. None of them except Kobe Bryant. The bright-eyed, bushy-tailed high school phenom even told Jordan during the 98 All-Star game that he was ready to take the torch. And when the time came to put his money where his mouth was, Bryant stepped up to the plate and knocked that torch even over the loftiest of ambitions. Max Kellerman said it best. In a world where everyone wanted to be like Mike, Kobe said, I'm going to do Mike better than Mike. And he almost got there. And for once in his life, Max is right. Kobe Bryant came closer to Michael Jordan than anyone ever has. No one goes around looking for the next Michael Jordan because we already got him. His name's Kobe Bryant. And I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't have a soft spot for the late legend. Or if I told you I didn't try to mimic that exaggerated scowl in between my sets at the gym. But the truth is... That's how everyone is when they talk about Kobe Bryant. During my interviews, it seemed that every time Bryant would get brought up in conversation, all dialogue would come to a halt, and we would just take the time to make sure that the Mamba's praise was properly echoed. Um, I, I had a saying, if we were all like Kobe Bryant, we'd be building condos on the moon by now. Mm-hmm. That I mean, he literally saw no limits. And he attacked everything with no limits. I had to speak at a school about Kobe. And some kid on the front row asked me, you know, it's a high school. And this kid was 17. And she asked me um, what Kobe was like. And I asked her if she had a job. And she said, yeah, I work at, at, work at the grocery store. I said, well, you, when you go into work today, you call all the adults together in the grocery store. And you tell them with your most serious face that within five years, you're going to be not just running the grocery store. You're going to be running the grocery store chain. And for uh, with that, 
you're going to need all of them to stay after work so that they can get better at their jobs. They're going to have to work harder on the cash registers. They're really going to have to be super dedicated to stocking the shelves. And they're all going to have to do this because we're all going to meet this goal of greatness. And I ask her, how do you think the adults around you would respond to such an approach? And I call uh, Kobe the, the greatest grocery guy of all time. That was Roland Lazenby. You heard him earlier in the episode. He spent years talking to and studying Kobe Bryant for the books he wrote on him. And he witnessed firsthand the maniacal work ethic that is synonymous with the Laker legend. Now here's Austin P. head coach Nate James telling me a story Johnny Dawkins once shared with him. Experience with Johnny when I was a player always wanted to have Johnny Dawkins work me out because he was a pro. He was such so good. He knew his stuff. And his his workouts would be unbelievably hard. I mean, like you you kind of dreaded a Johnny Dawkins workout. So I say all that to set up um, what I'm going to say next is Johnny worked Kobe out and Johnny told him, say, look, I know how I get down, but Kobe worked me out. <laughs> I mean, every drill I came up with, it's like, okay, we're going to do this shooting drill. We're going to shoot 10 shots. If you miss, um, you're going to run. How many shots do you want to make? Um, and what's your goal out of the 10? Give me a number. And most people say, um, out of 7 out of 10, 6 out of 10, 8 out of 10, whatever, whatever your level is. And Kobe's like, look, I expect to make 10 out of 10. If I shoot it, I expect to go in. So if he didn't make it, then that's going to be a punishment. So Johnny was like, the, the Kobe won. He did all this on his own. He came up with all of this. And he would run full speed. He would shoot at full speed. He did everything game speed. And by the end of that workout, and by the way, I mean, it was, he said it was like a two-hour workout. He said, my hands, Donnie Dawkins said, my hands are so sore from firing that ball at him. You know, my elbow, everything. And Kobe's there, like, you know, wanting more. He's drenched with sweat. He hadn't taken one water break in the two hours. And this is hard running. He's not making his goal. He, he keeps going until he does it. And he realized that the level of work, you hear some people say, oh, I work hard, I work but it's levels to this thing. So he's never seen anybody work that hard. And I think that really set the tone um, for everyone who's ever seen the great um, Kobe. Just like Roland, Coach Nate has nothing but resounding praise for the late legend. And that's how everyone is when they talk about him. I have damn near an entire database of clips just like those two. Clips of players, coaches, media members, everyone. Explaining not only just how much Kobe Bryant and his insane work ethic meant to the game of basketball, but to their own lives. How many athletes can you seriously say that about? We all loved Kobe because at his very core, he was just like us. Just a person trying to be like his childhood hero. Just like me trying to be like Batman. The thing is, though, Kobe was not like us. 
he was cut from a different cloth. He came to the NBA straight out of high school, told Jordan, I'm up next before his 20th birthday. Before he was even old enough to rent a car, he had already won three straight titles as the co-star in what quite possibly may have been the greatest dynamic duo in the history of the league for the most storied franchise in the history of basketball. After some down years, he pushed Shaq out of town with his best Marlowe Stansfield impression. Big fella, I was never meant to play the son. He then switched his jersey number and broke one of the unwritten rules of sports. He gave himself his own nickname. From there, it all went downhill. Los Angeles' favorite son endured intense levels of scrutiny both on and off the court. Some of it was deserved, other parts not so much. Regardless, all of it was enough to push any mortal being to the brink. Not Bryant, though. He wanted all the smoke. After some down years, the Lakers retooled. And just like the West Baltimore kingpin, Bryant got the last laugh. He collected two more rings without Prop Joe. And after the second one, he got up on the scores table, raised his arms out wide, and shouted, Motherfucker, are you kidding me? I am Olympic Boulevard. Kobe had solidified himself. The consummate Laker. Even after all of that, number 24 had yet to debut his final act. As I mentioned earlier, Kobe Bean Bryant was the most dazzling performer of them all. And it was he, not the 73-win Warriors, not The Wire, or even P.T. Barnum, that was the greatest show on earth. And he reminded all of us of that fact one last time when he delivered the swan song of all swan songs during his final game as a Los Angeles Laker and forever proved the Reggie Miller epithet to hold true that the Mamba still has venom in those fangs. So why exactly is Bryant higher than some of the names that just missed the cut? Let's go down player by player, starting with Will. I mentioned last episode that Will lack that natural balance that all great offensive engines have. And I wouldn't say Bryant ever fully achieved Sage Master status in that department, but he was definitely closer along in his progression than Wilt was. And that, coupled with his superior scoring, fit on high-level offenses as both a number one and number two option, and demonstrated ability to fit seamlessly within high-level defensive schemes, is just enough for me to push Bryant over him in this list. The Garnett decision goes back to the whole, how did you dominate your era question. And while I probably prefer Garnett's collection of skills over Bryant's in almost any other era, Kobe's more methodical and probing style helped him better dominate the dead ball era. Plus, Kobe was so much better at just easily generating points at the free throw line, averaging 11 per 100 possessions compared to Garnett's 6.5. And lastly, in the case of Steph, I'm going to be honest here. The only thing stopping Steph from leapfrogging Brian on this list is longevity. Curry still needs a few more years of high-level production before I can say that a superior peak is enough to have him over Bryant. Now for the why below, Brian isn't higher on my list because at the end of the day, no matter how great of a tough shot maker you are, Being a really good easy shot maker will always be better. And this goes back to his playoff efficiency. While Bryant did a great job at not falling off too much in the playoffs efficiency-wise, his efficiency numbers weren't all that great to begin with anyways. So, I mean, 
you have to you have to weigh the pros and the cons there. And he also did have that hero complex that led to him shooting his team out of games and sometimes even playoff series altogether, particularly in 2004. But being from the Metro Detroit area, I'm not really complaining about that one. We love you, Big Ben. Most importantly, though, I don't think he's enough of an impact defender. I view him a little bit more favorably than most because he was able to contribute to good defensive teams, but still, I'd say he's only a slight positive in that regard. Combine that with the fact that his efficiency keeps him from just outside the pantheon of great offensive players, all those goddamn twos, and I can comfortably say that there are nine greater basketball players than Kobe Bryant. Hey, Quest listeners. We wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout-out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshaded. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded, a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose. And at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, Retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of the series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. Visit RetroShaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. Now for number nine on our list of the 10 greatest players in NBA history. Um, the one thing I always talk about in recruiting and I talk about with the school I've been at, I've been at it for a long time, is you don't duplicate greatness. Like, who, who's the next Akeem Olajuwon? Like, who's been like Akeem Olajuwon since he left the NBA? Nobody. Yep. Akeem Olajuwon. Actually, no, wait. I did it for Kobe. Akeem deserves his own pay-per-view boxing main event introductory as well. Let's try this again. The Nigerian nightmare. Little Moses. The pride of Phi Slamma Jamma. And one half of basketball's original Twin Towers. Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon. That's better. Coach Matt Painter was correct in saying we'll never find another player like Elijahwan. Not picking up a basketball until he was nearly 16 years old, Hakeem spent most of his childhood playing sports like soccer, volleyball, and handball. Definitely not your typical AAU standout prospect. And it's probably all the better. It was this A-formulaic trajectory in Hakeem's maturation that led to him developing the most unique skill set of any big man in NBA history. Armed with cat-like quickness and reflexes, guard-like handle, Ballet, footwork and agility, and Herculean strength, Hakeem Olajuwon was a multifaceted basketball machine. 
When you combine this cheat code loadout with some military grade level scoring moves, you have a recipe for one of the most dangerous isolation scorers in league history. And the Nigerian born big man was just that. For over a decade and a half, Hakeem terrorized opponents on the low block with a barrage of hook shots, pump fakes, spin moves, fadeaways, and a dream shake that made David Robinson, one of the five greatest defenders of all time, look like Wiley the Coyote. Unfortunately for opposing teams, Hakeem's scoring jurisdiction was not limited to just the low block. Unlike most big men that came before him, the Dream could receive the ball at the perimeter and take defenders downhill off the dribble. He also provided value as a jump shooter, particularly from the mid-range on standstill catch and shoot opportunities, where he was able to convert at higher rates than any of the all-time big men except for known shooting aficionados Kevin Garnett and Dirk Nowinski. And you thought I wouldn't find time to talk about Dirk. I also think that his shooting proficiency, along with his great hands and leaping ability, more on that a little later, would have made him the perfect screener in pick and roll and pick and pop situations. He fared really well in the few instances I was able to observe him in that type of scenario. However, the Rockets were never able to provide him with the caliber of on-ball creator necessary for that ability to be fully realized. And that leads me to my next point. Part of the reason for the Rockets' inability to provide him with a dynamic playmaker can be traced back to Elijah Wan's old passing, which left a lot to be desired to say the least. From my film study, I can pretty confidently say he's the worst passer of all the all-time great big men other than Moses, as he grades lower in Ben Taylor's passer rating stat than any big man other than the chairman of boards himself. Many of the Dream's advocates will chalk this up to him being hesitant to share the rock with his motley crew supporting cast and personnel, and to his credit, his passing does improve upon the arrival of more capable reinforcements and the promotion of coaching guru Rudy Tomjanovich. But still, I tend to believe that his shortcomings in this department are more systematic than environmental. This all goes back to the whole natural feel thing we talked about with Will. As writer Ben Ladner told me during our interviews, Hakeem Olajuwon makes very mechanical reads. His passing is very reactive rather than predictive. With him, it's like he is a computer in chess. His algorithm is pre-programmed to make moves when his human opponents react in a certain manner. For instance, during his iconic 1994-95 playoff run, Hakeem created a lot of open looks for teammates by pre-programming it into his circuit board that he needed to kick it out to the strong side open man on the perimeter when defenses sent the double team. And to his credit, it worked out okay for him. The Rockets won the NBA championship. But this rather rigid approach also led to him missing many of those more advanced reads to cutters under the rim, which could have led to even more easy opportunities for the Dream's teammates. I know this is really nitpicky, but this may as well be the quest for picking nits. Offense aside, the main reason Hakeem Olajuwon deserves a seat at Plato's Symposium is because of his impact on the less glamorous side of the floor. It was here that Hakeem used that video game combination of skills and attributes to become one of the most terrorizing defensive forces the league has ever seen. Let's start with the most eye-catching aspect of his defense, his shot blocking. Hakeem boasts higher career block percentages than any other all-time great other than Robinson, who by the way probably would have gladly traded in a few swats to avoid being on the receiving end of Hakeem's greatest highlight in my ill-thought-out cartoon comparison. Anyway. At his apex, Hakeem reached god tier as a rim protector, using his pterodactyl wings and insane leaping ability to contest shots to their zenith and literally emit basketballs from the space-time continuum. 
His reputation as a rim protector preceded him to the degree that opponents began to stop venturing over into his territorial grounds entirely, opting for lower percentage pull-up jumpers over the possibility of provoking a dormant Charizard. And unlike Gobert, Hakeem's rim protection didn't come with a drawback of exploitable limitations in mobility. Olajuwon was able to tap into that guard-like quickness that made him such a fierce isolation scorer in order to follow smaller and faster guards around on the perimeter when the moment required it. You couldn't try that Ty Lue-style small ball offense on the Rockets because Hakeem Olajuwon is one of the few players in NBA history that you can legitimately say could guard all five positions on the basketball court. On top of that versatility, while his passing reads may have been mechanical, his defensive understanding was instinctual. And couple that with some grade A hands, and you have a guy who provided guard level impact in the passing lanes. And then there's that world class reaction time. My freaking god that reaction time. From watching Hakeem, I'm thoroughly convinced he was nicknamed the Dream, not because of any of his scoring moves, but rather because it seemed like an illusion watching him react on defense. It was literally as if he was traveling through time when he would help and recover on defense. Time is a flat circle. Watching him made Russ Cole's philosophy seem correct. Whenever a perimeter defender was mauled by a screen, Hakeem was there to flank him. Whenever that perimeter defender would get beat by the penetrating man, Hakeem was there to rotate and offer help. Whenever that penetrating man would collapse the defense and hit the laydown pass under the rim, Hakeem would turn and be there to offer resistance. Just like Detective Cole is always in that office being interrogated by those other detectives, Hakeem Olajuwon is always right there on defense. And it's this awe-inspiring reaction speed that leads me to call Hakeem Olajuwon the greatest help defender in NBA history. One more note I want to make about his defense is that something that separates him from other all-time defenders like, say, a David Robinson was his merit as a man defender. Hakeem held up better than most in this regard, famously holding Hall of Famer Patrick Ewing to 39% true shooting during the 1994 NBA Finals. And I'd say Hakeem's own proficiency as an isolation scorer helped him in this area as he was able to call upon his own experiences to help him predict and contain the potential leverage creating moves being deployed by his man. All in all, I feel confident saying that Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon is probably the second best defender in NBA history. But I definitely wouldn't look at anyone sideways for calling him the game's most goaded stopper. The numbers show that Hakeem is of the Kobe Bryant resilient playoff scoring ilk, as he's the only all-time great other than Isaiah Thomas that increases his scoring volume and actually sees an increase in his efficiency along with it during the game's second season. He's also a great defensive performer in the playoffs. He boasts the highest defensive box plus minus of all the all-time greats, which I think speaks to the fact that his defensive style is not only effective, but extremely portable in terms of the different schemes and styles he can hold up against. He's also got top tier block and steal rates. His block rates hover around the illustrious 7% during his defensive peak years from 89 to 93. Those numbers and all the other variables we talked about earlier give him a strong case as the GOAT rim protector. Steel wise, for his career, his steal rate is higher than guys like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and on par with the likes of Magic Johnson, a two-time league leader in steals in his own right. This company is even more impressive when you take into account Olajuwon was a center, not a guard. His insane outputs in both of these stats make sense since he is the only player in NBA history to amass nearly 6,000 career stocks. 
that steals in blocks for those of you who are wondering. One thing we didn't really cover in the actual portion of our argument was his rebounding rates. His defensive rebounding is all around pretty solid, nothing crazy spectacular, but what really stands out is his offensive rebounding. His offensive rebounding percentages paint him as an elite offensive rebounder, trailing only Shaq and Moses among the players I studied in this category. His ability to consistently generate second chance opportunities adds even more offensive value to an already well-polished offensive arsenal. Now, looking at my adjusted Osaki score, it views him a little bit less favorably than I do as he scores a 105.5, which is the lowest mark of anyone in my top 10 and puts him at a deadlock for 13th all-time with Bob Ryan's boy, John Havlicek. Bob does love him some Hondo. As the only other guy who peaked in the Jordan era to crack my top 10, Hakeem suffers a similar fate to all of MJ's other contemporaries from this era. Jordan was just so damn good at racking up rings and accomplishments that he didn't save enough glory for the other heavy hitters. Jordan, if you couldn't tell, wasn't from the all-my-boys-eat school of thought. Nonetheless, Hakeem stamped out quite the legacy for himself. A two-time NBA champion, two-time finals MVP, one-time MVP, one-time runner-up, two-time defensive player of the year, 12-time All-NBA selection, nine-time All-Defensive recipient, 12-time All-Star, two-time rebound leader, and a three-time block leader. Not too shabby for a guy who played handball. Transitioning over to the more ESPN talk show argument, let's talk about this for a second. You hear all the time about Darko getting drafted over Wade, Bosch, and Mello, about the Timberwolves taking Johnny Flynn and Ricky Ruby over Steph, or Marvin Bagley getting taken over Luka Doncic and Trey Young. Even in the same damn draft class, you've heard countless people mock and berate the Blazers for taking Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. But I can almost guarantee you that even on the most obnoxious episodes of The Jump, you will never hear a single person question the Rockets' decision to select Hakeem Olajuwon over Michael Jordan. Just let that sit with you for a second. A basketball player had such an incredible career that literally no one in the entire basketball community considers it a disappointment that he was selected before the man many people believe to be the greatest player in the history of the sport. Not only did he live up to all the hype that came with his first overall selection, but Hakeem Olajuwon became the only peer of Michael Jordan's to come away with a ring during MJ's eight-year reign of terror on the NBA. Albeit, the Dreams 2P overlapped with the Chicago Legends' 18-month sabbatical. Hakeem still had to go through a murderous row of opponents on his way to his two championships. Clyde Drexler, Charles Barkley twice, Stockton and Malone twice, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Shaq, and Penny Hardaway, just to name a few. Hakeem Olajuwon established himself as the clear-cut second-best player in an era lauded by many as the greatest in the history of the game. And this wasn't just the opinion of some strange guy watching 90s games in his room. Almost everyone I talked to spoke about Hakeem Olajuwon with the utmost respect. Well, I, I had a unique opportunity to spend time with Hakeem. I, I was on a NBA trip to Australia, and they were taking a, a group of players over there. And I, I, I was fortunate to be able to go when he was in that grouping. And so we, we were doing some clinics and doing some things in the midst of some of the PR that we were doing. And I was amazed. I, I was taking some young Australian kids through some ball handling drills, and there were two ball ball handling drills. And 
you know, this will give you some insight into him. He, he was so enamored and taken back by those ball handling drills that it was like, Hey, we got to spend time together. I want to learn these drills. I want to get my handle better. And I was just, you know, here, here was a, you know, all pro one of the all time, you know, greats and having a great uh, career yet, you know, he was probably eight or nine years in the league at the time. And he's wanting, you know, to do some ball handling drills as a, as a quote unquote center in the league, because he wants to work on his handle so he can be even an even better player. So I, I think that speaks to his mentality and his humble approach to being successful at the game and, and not being too good to continue to learn and grow. Um, and um, I, I mean, literally within days, you know, he, he, he had mastered these two ball ball angels and w- was relentless in his attack to do it, um, which was, you know, truly an eye opener to, to, to me having being able to spend time and really just, because I had seen him from far and didn't really know him, it was really, really impressive. That was former NBA player and current UC Davis head coach Jim Less. He played against Hakeem Olajuwon throughout his career in the 90s and also worked a basketball camp with him during that time. So he witnessed firsthand the greatness that is Hakeem the Dream. Here's another clip from former NBA player and current Lords University head coach Dennis Hobson. Hakeem Olajuwon was... A big, I would say he was a big with guard skills, okay? He was, he had great footwork, man. He had excellent footwork, and he was able to do a lot of damage with counter moves, um, being a back-to-the-basket guy. Or he or he could square you up, or he could, he could, he could play uh, finesse, or he could play with power. But I looked at I looked at I looked at Dream as being a big with guard skills. Looks like game recognizes game after all. The all-time leading scorer at Ohio State and MJ's former teammate on Chicago, Hobson knows exactly what it means to play the game at the highest level. Now here's one more clip from the Athletics Lawrence Murray. Olajuwon, who was my first favorite NBA player, was winning his championships. It wasn't let me tell you something. Uh, Jordan's Bulls was left off the hook. Honestly, I don't know if they would have won four and, and five um, in the years that Akeem won one and two with those Rockets teams. And those Rockets teams didn't have another. I mean, they had another Hall of Famer in the second season with Clyde, but Clyde was a midseason addition and a guy who had put his best Hall of Fame work already for another franchise for a dozen years before he got to Houston. What Akeem was able to do on both ends of the floor was special. Akeem has some of the most sick statistics, and we don't even talk about him in the GOAT discussion. I'm just making the point of Akeem was absolutely dominant for a team that didn't have a ton of talent around him during his best years as a player, and he did it all. You, you know, he could facilitate because even though he wasn't a great passer and was turnover prone, he got to the point where once Houston was ahead of that curve with how teams approach the three-point line you get it into him and he's either going to roast you it doesn't matter if you david robinson or some other great center patrick uinch keel O'Neal. look at who he went through to to in those playoff runs and then you double team him and they built their team it took 
10 years, but they finally built a team that made sense around him. They had shooters lined up around the perimeter, knocking down shots. You couldn't dip on him. He would make his free throws. He could make the mid-range shot, even though he wasn't a guy who shot from 20 feet and beyond. And defensively, he was uh, he was incredible. Law gets at something really interesting with his statement. That Jordan's Bulls kind of got left off the hook because they never had to match up with Hakeem and the Rockets. He might be onto something here. During their dynasty, the Bulls never had a dominant interior defender, and even Air Jordan himself, a man known for his ultra-competitiveness, publicly admitted to fearing Olajuwon over any of the other guys he played against. So, I mean, it wouldn't be the most outrageous proclamation in the world to say Jordan's squeaky clean finals resume may have had a glaring blemish on it had he had the misfortune of meeting up with Olajuwon at the big dance. One of the all-time great what-ifs. And you know what? After the ratings of this series underperform and I fall into a state of despair in that houseboat we talked about, I'll get a 12-pack of Rolling Rocks and run 100 simulations of 90s Rockets vs. Bulls in 2K21, and afterwards I'll write about it and sell my findings to pay for my Letterbox Pro subscription. Stay tuned. Alright now, so why does Hakeem finish ahead of some pretty noteworthy candidates? In the case of Wilt and Garnett, both their weaknesses on defense, for Wilt his mobility and Garnett his susceptibility strength, are both positive elements of Hakeem's all-time defensive profile. On top of that, while Wilt and Garnett's scoring efficiency falls off big time in the playoffs, Hakeem Olajuwon is one of the all-time most resilient playoff scorers in NBA history. Hakeem's nominal superiority over Kobe Bryant is also a question of defense. I do feel that Bryant is a superior offensive engine, but Hakeem's all-time defensive impact, in comparison with Bryant's marginally effective output on that end of the floor, is enough to catapult him over the Black Mamba in this discussion. This is also the last time I'm going to say this, but I want to make sure it's known that the only thing keeping Steph from Hakeem in this discussion is a few more All-NBA seasons. Now, there are two main reasons why Hakeem only finishes ninth all-time in our quest for the best. Reason number one, Hakeem's isolation skills were sort of a double-edged sword. Elijah was such a prolific scorer that it became virtually impossible to guard him one-on-one. Teams were forced to send double and triple teams at the Dream nearly every time he touched the rock. Power plays galore, am I fucking right? That sounds awesome. You'd think that. But when the help came, Hakeem would just keep shooting. In fact, I'd say Hakeem Olajuwon took more double-team contested fallaway jumpers than anyone in NBA history. His resilient scoring made his poor shot selection bearable. I said earlier Kobe was number one. While Hakeem is a close second in the quest for greatest difficult shot makers in NBA history. But, also like I said about Kobe, you don't always need to be the hero. It's like... If the bank's getting robbed while you're there, you'd rather be staying next to the guy who stands by idly and lets the bank robbers get on their merry way than the person who puts you all in danger because they can't stop eyeing the phone in their pocket in the prospect of calling 911. Right? Well, it's the same in basketball. Give me the good, easy shot getter who's okay with taking what the defense gives them over even the most goaded of tough shot makers. Moral of the story here, don't be the hero, kids. Hero complexes aside, the second reason why I can't put Hakeem any higher on this list is because I have serious questions about an offensive team's ceiling with Hakeem as its best player. 
The Rockets only finished in the top five in offensive efficiency once during Hakeem's tenure, and that was in 1998-99 in a season where he only played 50 games and was, for all intents and purposes, at the tail end of his prime. Now, like I said, part of this is because the Rockets struggled to pair Olajuwon with a dynamic perimeter player for almost his entire career, but I also believe even if they would have, the pairing would struggle to reach their full potential because of Olajuwon's passing deficiencies and ball-dominant tendencies. Almost everyone else who finishes higher than Olajuwon has a skill set that allowed them to exist in an elite-level offense. We have officially reached the end of our two-part premiere of The Quest for the Best. So far, to recap, the guy who got cut from his high school basketball team has shaken the world of every old head by telling you that Wilt Chamberlain is not a top 10 player of all time, crushed the heart of every Kobe diehard on Twitter by telling them that there are nine players in NBA history better than the Laker legend, and spent almost 60 seconds comparing Hakeem Olajuwon to an HBO TV show protagonist. Thanks for listening, and next week we'll be back with Chapter 3 of Quest for the Best. <laughs>